Jesus, as I hear these words read, I see myself there right now, today, this morning, I am there. Oh, but the freedom that we have in Jesus. I just pray that today, no matter who is here and where they're coming from and where they are with Jesus in their life, whether they've walked with him for 50 years or not yet begun to receive him for the first time, I pray that just freedom would just come over our hearts and our souls this morning as we begin to understand the depths of the gospel. Would your freedom come and set us free today? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So kids, I got a question for you to get started today. In your house, do your parents have any rules for you? You got rules? Okay, one family has rules. Okay, two families... So there's some rules, more rules are coming in. Do you ever find it hard to keep the rules in your house? Okay, I see some yeses in here. Um, do you find, did you find it hard to keep the rules in your house this morning? I know I can answer for our house this morning, yes. And do you ever, kids, whenever you blow it, say there's a rule in your house and you, you mess up, you violate that rule, you break that, that, that command that mom or dad has, do you ever, after that, feel to yourself, why did I do that? I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to break that rule. I didn't set, to break out, set out to break that rule, but for some reason I did that, and I don't know why I did that. You ever have that feeling? Listen, that is one of the most universal experiences. And I got news for you kids. Mom and dad are the same way. I don't know if they're brave enough to tell you that. But that is a human reality that nobody's getting out of. You know, there's a great novel that's kind of a, it's kind of just a, a cultural phrase now for us. Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. There was, a, there was a novel that was written in the late 1800s called The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And that's where you know, we get that phrase that comes from. We use that phrase to talk about usually if it's somebody in our life that's really irritating to us or, or that we think that they're crazy and they act one way and then they add the other. We, we're like, it's like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. But you know that if you get into the novel and you, you read this, the, the story and follow the plot line, it's, it's really a... It's a really profound story. And the writer, who was a Scotsman, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, he, he was actually raised in a Presbyterian home, believe it or not. And there are references in the novel, not directly, but just kind of paraphrased, that are lifted directly from Romans 7. Now, in the story, if you're unfamiliar with it, you got this guy named Dr. Jekyll, and he is, uh, he's kind of a scientist. He's a very, a very upright, moral man, very respected in his community, uh, just loves people, loves doing good, loves being a good citizen in his community, a uh, very moral and upright man, but he's got a problem. There's this other part of himself that is the exact opposite, this other part of himself that 
that wants to do evil and wants to do bad and wants to enjoy the, the uglier things of life and is just utterly selfish all the way down to the core. And he wrestles with this reality of like, there's like two people inside of me. Which one am I? And, and, and this reality of this war that's waging within his soul all the time, he says, neither one can be happy. Dr. Jekyll, the good side of me can never be free from these temptations that are so deep inside of me. And then the, the bad side of me can never be free from conscience. So neither one is happy. So he has a solution. He comes up with a serum that he can take that can allow him to move from the one to the other. So they can be unmixed. They can be separated. And the goal is to be able to change into his uglier side, Mr. Hyde, and be able to blow off the steam safely, get it all out, and then he can go back to being Dr. Jekyll. But something happens as he goes along. Mr. Hyde is far more powerful than he realizes. And Mr. Hyde begins to take over more and more of his life where before it was only on occasion that Mr. Hyde would come out and he could safely get all of that out of his system at those particular times. Now Mr. Hyde begins to come on more and more in his life. And there's actually times where Mr. Hyde is actually taking over and he's not even aware of it. And he begins to require more and more serum to be able to transform back to uh, to Dr. Jekyll. And he's realizing as the serum is running out. That Mr. Hyde is taking over. And the novel ends with him writing his confession. And saying goodbye as Dr. Jekyll. Because Mr. Hyde is about to take over. So that's. We see that novel. It's a very interesting novel. And you might think. Well that's a, that's a great story. But you see. Stevenson was writing that. Not just to give you a great story. But to get you to think about your own life. To, to kind of put on display the human reality that every single person knows, whether you're a Christian or not, there seems to be these two people inside of me. Can you relate to that? There's a part of me that, that wants to do right, that wants to be moral, that wants to do good, and yet there's another side of me that so often just wants the opposite. Sometimes he just shows up at unexpected times and and sometimes you can be that good for a while and then, then the evil just kind of takes over all at once. And so you feel torn on the inside. That's so often the human reality. You know, one interesting thing that happens to me as a pastor whenever I meet somebody and whenever they learn I'm a pastor, I know it's going to get weird all of a sudden because they go from like being themselves and cussing and being normal and all of those things that don't bother me at all and then whenever they hear I'm a pastor, all of a sudden, like, the eyes get big and no more cussing. And all of a sudden, they start, they turn into to Dr. Jekyll right in front of me. And they start telling me about, you know, what God's done in their life and about, you know, how, how they've gotten back on the right track and how they're, they're trying really hard. And I just want to be like, please spare me from this. You don't have to prove that to me. But there's something so deep inside of us that wants to somehow say, I'm Dr. Jekyll and not Mr. Hyde. And I think for so often, for, for so many of us, we tend to think of the Christian life basically as 
being more Dr. Jekyll than Mr. Hyde. That is being more good. Like if I can, if I can be that more and if the Mr. Hyde in me just comes out less and less, then that, that's how God's going to love me and accept me and that's how I'm going to get into heaven. I just got to have more Dr. Jekyll than Mr. Hyde. And so often in our lives, even the pattern of a week can be divided into those two. On Sunday, we're all Dr. Jekyll, right? But what about Saturday night? What, what about the rest of the week? What about whenever you're at work? See, the reality is we, we tend to think this is how the Christian life goes. Be more good than bad and we'll outweigh in the end and everything will work out in the end. If I'm a good person, we like to tell ourselves, I'm really Dr. Jekyll. For others of us, we might think that once you become a Christian, there is no more Mr. Hyde. That's what I thought as a young believer. Once you become a Christian, there's only Dr. Jekyll. There's only good. There's none of that bad. It's all gone. And then you have to convince yourself and everybody else that it's only the good. But here's what we see in our passage today. We see that whenever you come to Jesus, when Jesus takes up the center place in your heart and in your life, it does not mean that the battle is over. In fact, as Paul teaches here, the battle intensifies. It gets worse. But the battle is fundamentally changed when someone comes to Jesus. And that fundamental change is that you get the outcome before you do the performance. You get the verdict before you go through the trial. The end is decided before you even go through, before you even play the game. As Tim Keller puts it very beautifully, he says it goes. The, 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 the battle is fundamentally changed in your life from being a battle you can't win to a battle you can't lose. Tremendous freedom. Let's look at the passage together. As Stan said, this can be very, very confusing passage. The Apostle Paul is that way. You've got to just pour and pour over each and every word in understanding what he's saying. But here's the thing that just jumps out about this passage. Did you see the description? We're hearing the words of someone who's just bearing their soul here. I mean, this is tremendous honesty, tremendous vulnerability. Look, at what, look again at what he is saying about himself. We know that the law is spiritual. This is verse 14. But I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. That's a pretty honest kind of admission there, isn't it? The kind that makes everybody blush. You don't believe I'd have shared that, Pastor. Right? And then he goes on and he says, listen, you need to understand. The good that I want to do, I don't do. But the things that I hate, those things in my life, those things that I keep going back to, those patterns in my life, the things that I hate about myself, I find myself doing it over and over. And when I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Can you relate to that? That's incredibly encouraging. Listen to this. Do you know who's writing that? The Apostle Paul. The greatest Christian who has ever lived. The greatest missionary. We see him. He, he wrote most of the New Testament. or the, Most of the New Testament was written about him. He planted all these churches all over the world. Uh, he literally gave his life for the sake of the gospel. He was beaten and tortured and in, in, imprisoned and all these different things for the sake of Christ. Poured out his life for the kingdom. And yet, 
Here he is saying, I'm unspiritual. I'm sold as a slave to sin. The things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I hate, those are the things that I keep on doing. This honest struggle in his heart, the Apostle Paul is saying, that's me. Now, there's one thing about this passage. There's been a lot of debate over, is Paul talking about himself before conversion or after conversion? Now, you can see why that debate comes up, because you've seen here, how can the Apostle Paul say, I'm unspiritual? Paul, you're the greatest. You're the most spiritual. How can the Apostle Paul say, the things that I want to do, I don't do? How can the Apostle Paul say, I'm sold as a slave to sin? Now, you see how many theologians and Christian leaders, they read that and they're like, no way. That can't be Paul, because the Christian life is about victory. Once you come to Jesus, you're set free, and you beat all of those sins in your life. This can't be talking about Paul, but it is. Can't be me. Yeah, right, can't be me. It's talk, he's talking about himself after conversion. How do you know that? It's just kind of obvious, but it's the tense of the verb. Every single verb in that section is present tense. He's not saying, I used to be unspiritual, but now I got it all together and I'm on the top of the heap. I used to struggle with these things. I used to to want to do this and I'd end up doing that. That's how it used to be, past tense. But now, that's not what he says. He says, this is true of me now. I am unspiritual. The things that I want to do, I don't do. Paul is saying, this is is the reality for the greatest Christian who's ever lived. That's a shocker. It tends to turn upside down the way that we think of the victorious Christian life. Listen, when I was a young believer, this passage set me free as much as any other thing. I've shared a little bit about my story before, but as I came to be a believer, my initial understanding was that Jesus had paid for all my past sin, and now it's up to me. And that was okay, because I was fired up for about three months. You know, I was pumped. I was like, God, because I was a big sinner. I'm like, Jesus forgave all of that? Amazing. I want to live for him now. And that was real. I did. I very much wanted to serve him now. But after about three months, I started to struggle, deeply struggle. Sometimes with those same old patterns of sin from my life. And I didn't know what to do with that. Because in my mind, when you come to Jesus, the struggle's over. And that you could only share struggles if you're talking in the past tense. You know how that is. You know, somebody gets up and shares their testimony. And I used to be a sinner. And then Jesus did this. And now all I want to do is serve him. And everybody else in there is like, you know, I'm hiding my head because I don't want anybody to know I'm not a real Christian. That's what I thought Christianity was all about. It was about no longer struggling. And so here's what happened with me. I would try my best. I would, you know, white knuckle it. I would, I would put together a couple weeks of good holiness. You know, I'm reading my Bible daily. I'm praying. I'm with the right people. You know, I'm going to church. I'm doing it. And I'm feeling like, yes, I am a real believer. We're on the right track. And then out of nowhere, Mr. Hyde would show up. I'd fall off the wagon. And I'd be like, what's happening? 
you know, and so I'd beat myself up and come back to God and be like, I'm serious this time, God. I'm going to do it right this time. I really want to follow you, and I did. I did want to follow him. But then, a couple weeks later, for about three years of my life, that's how it was. I'm spiritual now. I'm on a spiritual high. I'm utterly in the depths because I'm just struggling and falling. And what do I do? And I, throughout those three years, I thought, I don't even know if I'm a real believer. Because what I hear the Christian life is about is not my experience. And then somebody came into my life and began to disciple me. And he led me to Romans 7. And it literally took my head off. It blew me away. I was like, I can't believe these words are in the Bible. That the Apostle Paul is sitting here saying, as he'll say in other places, I'm the worst sinner. You know, he says that. Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. Not I used to be, past tense. I am. How can he say that? Is Paul just, come on, is he just exaggerating here to make the rest of us feel better? No. How can he be real about his life? Because he was so spiritual. How can he say I'm unspiritual? Here's why. Because he's not comparing himself to other people. If he's comparing himself to other believers, he can't say this. He's going to show up and say, I'm spiritual. I got it all together. I'm blowing everybody away. But he did not compare himself to other believers. He compared himself to God, to the law. That's how Paul gets at this place of saying, I'm unspiritual. Look at verses 7 to 13. As Paul does take you back to before his conversion... And what the law revealed in his life. Look again. Look specifically at verse 9. Where he says this. Once, and this, he's going to give us a picture of how the law works in our life. Now we've talked about that the past few weeks. But here's what he says in verse 9. Once I was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came. Sin sprang to life and I died. What's he saying there? He's not saying once there was a time in my life where I didn't know about the law. Because we know about the Apostle Paul. He was raised in a devote, a devout, a devoted Jewish home. He would have known and memorized the Ten Commandments as a toddler. There was never a time in his life where he didn't know the law. But what, what he's saying is, is that there was a time in my life where I knew the law, but I didn't fully understand its demands. You see, it's very easy to look at God's law and just think it's talking about external things. And that was true for Paul. He looked at God's law and he said, I got it. I've never worshipped an idol. I've never disobeyed my mother and my father. I've never stolen anything. I've never committed adultery. I'm alive before God. But then, when the true demands of the law hit home to his heart, he says, I died. He says, I realized I was dead. As I saw that the true demands of the law are not just external, they're all the way to the heart, I realized I'm shot. I'm shot through all the way to the bottom. I'm like a dead man walking. And that was a part of his conversion. Jump back, second part of verse 7. I would not have known what, the, what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, 
produced in me every kind of covetous desire. Tremendous, we say in here. So in the Ten Commandments, you can go through, it's possible to read the Ten Commandments and say, it's just about the externals, and uh, I'm not stealing anything, I'm not lying, I'm not committing adultery, I'm keeping God's law. But there's a problem when you get to the Tenth Commandment, do not covet, because it's not an external at all. None of the laws are about the externals, but there's no way to make coveting an external, because it's a heart desire. What is coveting? Coveting is wanting what someone else has. Wanting someone else's wife, wanting someone else's uh, career, wanting someone else's body, wanting someone else's car, wanting someone else's family. list goes on and on and on. It's a desire of the heart. Fundamentally, even deeper than that, it's a discontentment. It's not, it's not being deeply content with what I have, but even deeper than that, it's a failure to be content in God alone. See, it goes all the way to the bottom. It's, it's any approach in life where God is not your ultimate treasure. You can only be content if whenever you know I have God, I have everything. What more could I want? And that's the root of what the commandment do not covet means. And so Paul says whenever the true reality of the law hit home to my heart, I was dead. Because I realized all I do is covet things. See, whenever you read the law that deeply, you realize... That's all I do. But not only does he say it reveals, he also said it incites sin. Did you notice that? Look again at what he says. Verse 8, but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. It, it, it inflamed his sin. He says this again in verse 11, for sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, Deceive me and through the commandment put me to death. He says the same thing if you jump back to verse 5. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions were aroused by the law. See, what Paul's teaching here is not only does the law expose you, it also inflames our sinful nature. Now that's a profound kind of teaching there. Why is that? The problem is not with the law. As he says over and over and over, listen, the law is beautiful, it's holy, it's a, it's a revelation of who God is and all of his beauty. The problem is with us. The problem is with the sinful nature. And at the root of the sinful nature, it is a desire to be our own God. Same thing in the, right in the very beginning in the garden. Adam and Eve, you can be like God. At the root of our sinful nature, the flesh, is a desire to be ruled by no one, to be our own captain, to throw off God's demands, to throw off those in authority over us, to assert ourselves. So you see, whenever, you're, whenever the sinful nature is confronted with the law, it actually makes you want to do it, just for sin's sake itself. You see this if you have children. Okay, it's easy to see. Take a toddler. You know, a toddler's walking over towards a wall outlet, Starts to get interested in that wall outlet. And what do you say to the toddler? Don't touch that. And then watch what happens. The child will look. Wait till you're looking the other way. They know what they're doing. Bam! Touch it right there. You say don't do this. And that is the very thing you want to do. Do you see that's the dynamic Paul's talking about? The reality is, is if you're someone 
who begins to try to obey the law, who begins to read God's law, who begins to be exposed to God's law, it's going to make you worse. That's what he's saying. That's why Christians have the reputation of being rascals. Ask any, ask any um, waitress around town, what is your least favorite day of the week to wait on people? And they'll tell you right off the bat, do it, do it today when you go out to eat. They'll tell you right off the bat, Sunday, because all the Christians are here. They're the worst tippers, and they're going to complain about everything. Why are we like, why, how can we be worse? I thought we we're supposed to be better. Because whenever you're exposed to the law with no grace, it makes you worse. It makes you mean. It makes you hypocrites. It's the Pharisees. So Paul says, that's how Paul can sit here and say this. That's how Paul can look and say, listen, you need to understand, I'm unspiritual. The things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I hate, I keep on doing. This is the reality of the battle that I'm in. But there's hope. When Jesus comes into the center of your heart, it fundamentally changes the nature of the battle. It does not take you out of the battle. And I think we just not need to hear that. The battle does not stop when you come to Jesus. It does not mean that your struggle with sin is going to go away. We just need to get that out of the way right now. In fact, it can get worse. In fact, the, the better you try to be, the worse you, will, worse you will see yourself to be. The more that you try to obey God's law, the more that you will see yourself violating God's law. That's how it works. So how does it transform it? And here's how it transforms it. You get the outcome decided before you ever live the life. The outcome gets decided. You get the end record before you ever live it out. You get the verdict before the trial. You, how, how does that happen? How, is the, how can the outcome be decided before I even live my life? And it's because you get a new identity. You get a position. And so therefore the battle that you're in really does change from a battle you cannot win to a battle you cannot lose because you have a new identity. That's where Paul goes in the passage. As he's talked about this fierce battle, the whole rest of the passage leads up and builds up to this crescendo that you get to in verse 24. And look at what he says there. Here's his conclusion as he looks at his own heart and as he shares the reality of his battle. What a wretched man that I am. See, right here in verses 24 and 25, he gives us a little picture of what does it look like to come to Jesus? What does it look like to be converted? What, what, what does it look like to go from an unbeliever to a believer, from unsaved to saved? It's right here in these two verses. It's also the way you grow. We say that all the time. The gospel is not only how you get in. The gospel is how you grow. So this is also, this is how you get in, and it's also how you grow. And where does it start? Verse 24, with this recognition of my utter dependence. What a wretched man that I am. That's the conclusion he gets to as he looks at his own heart. I'm a wretch. There's nothing good in me. He's hit with the full reality of his sin, but he doesn't stay there. Second part of verse 24, he looks outside of himself who will rescue me from this body of death? See, not only do you have to see your sin, if you only see your sin, it'll kill you. 
We can't bear that much reality. But in seeing your sin, you've got to look outside of yourself. And that's what he does. Who will rescue me? That word rescue is so crucial. It's at the heart of the gospel. Christianity is a religion of rescue, not self-improvement. We, we, don't, we don't need instructions of how to get better. We don't need 10 steps to a, to a stronger marriage. We don't, we don't need to be rallied to go out and obey stronger. You know what we need? We need to be rescued. We need to be rescued for the first time, and we need to be rescued every single day for the rest of our life. Rescue is another word for grace. He looks outside of himself and says, who will rescue me? Christianity is not you meet God halfway. We mix my good with Jesus' good. i got to be rescued. But you can't stop there. Look where he goes in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, that's the turning and embracing by faith all that God has done for us in Jesus. But he doesn't just say, believe in Jesus. What does he say? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. You see, it's, it's enjoying Jesus. It's, when can you give thanks for something? When you've already received it. You see, it's, it's turning and realizing you've already done this. You've already accomplished this. And in receiving it, I'm filled with joy. Now, that saving faith is enjoying Jesus. It's not just knowing something in your head. My goodness, in the Bible Belt, we all know the formula. The question is, does the formula thrill your soul? Do you enjoy Jesus? Do you say in the midst of your brokenness, thank you, God, that you have already rescued me and that you're going to rescue me today over and over and over? When we're rescued and united to Jesus, we get a new identity right there in the middle of our battle. You see that in verse 17. You see what Paul said in verse 17? It's not I who do it. It is no longer I myself who do it, but is sin living in me. It's Paul's way of saying, this sin in my life is not me anymore. It's there. I'm responsible for it. But that's my old nature. That's not even me anymore. Who I am is I'm united to Jesus. That's my identity. And because of that, I have new desires. He says, in my inner being, in my heart of hearts, I delight in God's law. You see, that's how it changes the battle. You get a new identity. You get a new standing, a new position. For the believer, your struggle no longer defines you. Your sin no longer defines you. In fact, you are free to struggle. You're no longer struggling to be free. You're now free to struggle. That is the fundamental reality. And when that hits home, it changes everything about the Christian life. So let me just bring it home here with one application. How does seeing that impact us as a community? And I think one of the primary ways is this. It frees you to be honest about your real self. It frees you to no longer pretend in community with each other. Now, that's not common because I think in, in many places in the church and for many of us, we have not deeply appropriated the full truth of the gospel. 
And so we still think we got to hide. we got to pretend I'm not struggling like I am. But when that hits home, that right in the middle of my struggle, I have a new identity. I'm clothed with his righteousness. I'm, I'm, I have the embrace of the Father right in the midst of my struggle. It frees you to be honest about who you really are. We don't have to pretend anymore in relationships with each other. You can be honest. You can take your mask off. We can share struggle with one another and know that we're going to be accepted and loved in spite of our struggle because we've already experienced the acceptance and love of Christ. You see, it begins to form a certain kind of community. A community of deep connection and unity. A community of honesty and vulnerability. And I believe, as much as anything else, that's what the gospel does when it's embraced in a community of people. That is the ideal for the church. And let me tell you something. This county desperately needs that kind of community. This county needs a community of people who are brutally honest about the depth of their struggle and yet accepting one another in the love of Christ. There are so many people in this county that think, I tried as hard as I could to do the Jesus thing, but I just couldn't live up to it. And so they walked away. They didn't walk away from Jesus. They walked away from religion. And there's many, many, many other people, I talk to them all the time, that were a part of a Christian community that just beat each other up because they were all trying to pretend they were okay. What if we really were adamant about believing the gospel in our lives and letting it create this kind of community where, as, as Brent shared one time, Brent Halderman shared one time, he said, what I love about this church is that it's okay to not be okay. And that, that was one of those things where I just felt like it was God just saying, I am present here. You know, that, that, that's not saying that we've got it all together or we're the, that we're there, that we've arrived. Trust me, we have not. But that is what we're after. That we would be a community, a place where it's okay to not be okay because we have the grace of Jesus at work in our lives. Let's pray together. Boy, this is hard, Lord Jesus, to fully embrace and work into our hearts and we can we can know it in our heads but where it gets real scary is where we have to we have to act on it where we have to live as if it's true would you help us to live as if the gospel's true would you help us to know that whatever we're battling with that we think this god cannot look on this he he cannot receive me just like i am i got to clean up all those those things that go through our head and our heart would you just break through those things with the gospel that we would just come right where we are before you and that we would receive and know grace, that that might change us as a community? Would you make us into a community that is so deeply joyful over the gospel of Jesus that he would be our treasure and our delight because so deeply we're resting in all that he's done? Come and work that in us. For the good of our, our county, for the good of our city, in Christ's name we pray, amen.